Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, March fifteenth episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Haraji Ganeshan, with whom I will be discussing her poem, What Colonization Feels Like Some of the Time, and my poem, The Feast. As many of our devoted listeners know, at this point of the podcast, I usually announce poetry events taking place in the Valley for the next week. Unfortunately, due to the spread of the coronavirus, most of the poetry events have been canceled, and I personally do not feel comfortable sending anyone to public gatherings given the fact that tests for the coronavirus are not readily available. So I hope everyone will take this time to take care of your and your family's health, check in on your friends, Support your neighbors and local communities in any way you can and rejuvenate. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Raji Ganeshan. Hi, Raji. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you so much for having me, Imogen. I'm really, I'm really happy to be here. Too, me too. You brought with you the poem, What Colonization Feels Like Some of the Time. That is the current title, The yes. current title, okay. <laughs> Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Primarily, I identify as an educator. Mm-hmm. I've been a teaching artist in some capacity since I was like 18 years old. Okay. Um, really before that, because I learned a dance form in my cultural community. I'm mm-hmm. Tamil, and I learned a cultural dance form that comes from my community, and so we learned it out of homes. Right. So when I was really 14, 15, I used to to help teach classes for the younger girls and just kind of get cash under the table. And that was a really meaningful way that I uh, saved money you know, when I was younger and, and earned money when I was younger. And then that transition, once I was 18 and could be a fingerprint clearance card holder, it's like I would start volunteering and teaching at shelters or teaching at summer camps. Yeah. So that's really important in terms of how I spend my time and, and what informs me. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the cultural things that inform me, um, as I mentioned, I'm Tamil. That's an ethnic group. We originate mostly from the south of India and Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. but there are diasporas that go back hundreds of years that are in the Caribbean and in Fiji, and then much more recent diasporas literally in the last 30, 40 years into the UK and to the US. Right, right. And there's some in Singapore as well. Yes, Singapore for sure, for sure. A lot of Tamil and Indian people in general in Singapore. Yeah, well, you're like, yeah. East Asians. We're yes. kind of everywhere. We're everywhere. The Asians are everywhere. <laughs> we are everywhere, truly. Um, yeah, but I feel very connected to my ethnic mm-hmm. identity, I think, more than the national identity of identifying with India as a country or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I feel really grateful for the cultural practices that have been preserved because mm-hmm. my people have been around for a long time. So it means a lot that things yeah. have been passed down for as long as they have. Yeah. So that's really important to me. And because I learned that dance form growing up, I think movement has always been a really important way that I express myself Mm -hmm. and when people often ask me like what's my medium as an artist because sometimes they'll see me doing dance and then reading poetry and I think that maybe sometimes confuses people even still in this society like in 2020 there's some sense of like consistency that people expect maybe and because I don't call myself like a performance artist and I don't spend enough time doing it it's not like my full-time thing at all so I don't think there's like as much of a cohesive identity um 
So when people ask me what I do, I'm like, you know, I like to tell stories and my body is like my instrument, right? right? So I like to move and the dance form that I learned is an oral storytelling form. So mm-hmm. I learn, you know, how to use my body to convey stories. And then eventually I found my way to language and writing things mm-hmm. down and sharing that and deciding how I can use my body to share those words also. Right. And that's also what I teach. Like I'll teach dance and theater. Mm-hmm. So that's been really a meaningful way for me to be connected to these practices and pass it on to other young folks. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah. Outside of that, I really care about mental health for black, brown, indigenous immigrant folks and our families, because mm-hmm. I think living in the United States in and of itself is such a complex and often violent experience for so many families and yeah. individuals. And so I think about that often. And I also really love cooking. <laughs> I love food. Great. I love to cook. I love to read. What kind of food do you cook? Oh my gosh, so much. I think I'm really grateful. You know, cooking is a, a skill that's very near and dear to my heart. It's a survival skill. It's mm-hmm. a way to make something out of whatever you have around your home. And right. I get so much from it. And again, like I come from a culture that's very ritualistic. So mm-hmm. I grew up cooking with my mom and doing very particular rituals with the food after we eat it to bless it before we eat it. Okay. Um, food to me is just a really, it's spirit to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cook a lot. I mean, like obviously Indian food, South Indian food, North Indian food more broadly. I cook. I'm vegan vegetarian. That's my diet. That's my right. lifelong right. diet commitment, I think. So I <laughs> really enjoy working with fruits and vegetables and grains and yeah I actually really love to cook. Were you born into a vegetarian family? I was I was yeah which is I don't want to say the norm for people from the part of the world that I'm from but it's certainly common. I know plenty of folks who are from the part of the world that I'm from who grew up eating meat but Mm -hmm. my family happens to be vegetarian for the most part. I think there's some individuals in my family who aren't but when my folks moved here I think they really maintained that Mm -hmm. but they also made it clear like y'all are out of the house like once you go to school and you're just running around like you're doing things we can't we can't we don't know what you're doing. So that's up to you. But yeah, somehow made it through, you know, um, (laughs) and resisted all the, you know, many attempts to either tempt me into eating meat or sneak it in. I mean, it is what it is. Kind of funny uh, stuff with kids and just going to public school, I think. But growing up, it didn't feel like a choice. But now as an adult, it is right. It's a Mm -hmm. choice in it. And it feels like a something that's connected to my health. And so I, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I, I know you weren't born in Arizona, so... I actually was. I was born in Phoenix. Oh, but I moved around were... a lot. Oh, that's and then I moved why. back. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, but fun sorry. fact, I was born here, yeah. When oh, my okay. parents moved from India, they moved to Tucson, which I think is oh, really okay. interesting. I thought yeah. it was California for some oh. reason. Since you've been here for a while, mm-hmm. how do you find the ease with which you can find vegetarian food? Mm, I think that's funny. Like, people will sometimes bring that up. Like, oh, how do you eat but I'm like I'm so used to cooking literally I think because of this being a part of how I grew up it was just like never a question like I grew up not relying on outside food or outside environments to provide things that I needed for my diet so I got very good at packing a lunch you know and going anywhere I needed to and like being able to do that with relatively few resources right like Mm -hmm. simple as like maybe even like a peanut butter jelly sandwich like a lot of memories of just like packing that and being on my way (laughs) and like packing a fruit and being on my way and being with people that's actually a big part as long as I have access to being able to you know get food from markets and anything like that like I can always provide for myself and I think Mm -hmm. that's a tremendous source of comfort but as I have come to grow and like witness the ways that businesses expand and obviously now vegetarianism and veganism is like a bit of a trend which is really complicated for me and something that's interesting to witness as a lot of like white folks really take it and kind of make it something that's deeply inaccessible for people by making all of these like really expensive meat alternatives and like making restaurants that have a very particular vibe to suggest that like if you're vegan you're inherently spiritual I think it's a very weird commodified 
kind of lifestyle, <laughs> which is really marketing, not marketing. Very, 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 yeah, totally marketed <laughs> lifestyle when the reality is like predominantly plant-based diets are things that like cultures have been doing for a long time. Like there's yeah. a lot of indigenous foods that are rooted in like seasonal plant-based things right. and that's literally at every continent like every culture that i know of in the global south and they're like if there is use of meat the idea is that it's just meat that's like visible right it's like right, animals right. that are around you and right. and that that's you raise. hard meat was hard to come by it's hard to come by hunting takes a lot of time and it skills is. so it, they don't always come back with game it so. is it is and so like to me it's really important like i think because of the co-opting of veganism and vegetarianism like oftentimes i'll have a lot of friends who i think feel really pushed away or pushed like repelled by the idea because it feels elitist or it feels judgmental and Mm -hmm. that's why I don't really preach about this stuff at all because I think that that is such an unfortunate way that we talk about something as important as diet and how we feed ourselves and how we perceive that as being part of the world but like I talk about it and I tell people I'm like I'm not trendy vegan I'm like culturally vegan right like it comes from like (laughs) lentils rice beans like things that have been around for a long 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 time that are existing in every culture something that's really cool is there's a really big movement of black brown and indigenous folks who are really finding their footing in plant-based work and like Mm -hmm. knowledge sharing like I think about an organization like Sana Sana Foods in Phoenix Mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of people who are really finding their way to that and realizing like no this is about American fast food is like a tool to kill people, um, like literally it's by design. And this idea of taking back indigeneity through plant-based diets is something that people deserve and it's a way to really respond to some of the health concerns that predominantly black and brown and predominantly poor communities are facing, right? Like high mm-hmm. rates of diabetes, like high rates of heart disease. So all these things are connected, but you know, as with so many movements towards health and wellness, there's the commodified kind of capitalistically driven version. And then there's the like, actual reclamation Mm -hmm. of global south global majority cultures kind of finding their path back to sustainable ways of living and i'm so there for that version and i'm so like really trying to be uh resistant to and provide alternatives for folks who think that the commodified predominantly white capitalistically driven versions of like spirituality veganism all these other things are like it's so not it it's so not the money um, anyway, that's why. Yeah, wow, I did not expect to talk about being vegetarian or vegan that long on this podcast. I'm into it. It's really important, right? It because is. we are in some ways what we eat. Yeah. So we have to be very careful of what we put into our body, especially really with all these forever chemicals yes. that apparently are everywhere and Phoenix as well. Listen, and, everywhere. Yeah. And like you know, I would love to like you know be able to grow my own food. Like that's kind of the next step. I have some friends and community members who I don't do that so beautifully already. But and I have admire you heard? that. So. There was a water event. One woman came in and she used to, her family grew their own food. Mm-hmm. But because of the con- water contamination, oh, sure, that sure. actually did not help them. Did not they help actually, them. She got really sick because Ugh. of the soil contamination. Oh, that is from, so tragic. From chemical chemicals. Chemicals. I mean, I believe that, of course. Like, agriculture is itself is a really complicated field, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how people approach the land. And yeah, the same kind of conversations, right, about like co-option and mass production versus indigenous practice can, mm-hmm. can be had for agriculture, right? Yeah. So there is, I mean, like, and I wouldn't even pretend to know. I have a lot of friends who are in the agriculture and farming world who I think are, again, really trying to preserve indigenous practice, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like for them, feed their people safely and in a way that's healthy but there are so many factors at play because we have really polluted so many of the earth systems right Right. in industrialization so it's a hard thing to reclaim it's certainly not easy Um, but it's something I think about right just as long term like again how do we divest from as many systems as possible that seems like the a way to really start to preserve health and like 
think newly and nourish each other. Yes, um, yes. And, and there healthy are people doing ways. this in healthy ways. In healthy ways. Well, that's Speaking a long of food, yes. actually, it's good because oh, that's both a good of transition. our poems are, are about food <laughs> oh, in some true. ways. Absolutely, yeah, that's using true. food as symbolism. So yes. I guess this is as good time as any for you to read your poem. Oh, for okay, us. I'd be honored. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's why we meant to. We had to talk about diet. <laughs> meant to, meant to be. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, well, as Imogen mentioned, this piece is titled "What Colonization." feels like some of the time. All we do here is consume. 30-minute lunch breaks, busy fingers and task management. Over lunch, we talk about our bodies, their eyes, our bodies, and the meeting point. All they want to do is eat us, she says. So now I demand the question, what are you eating me with? Am I being portioned out? peeled and sliced, dressed up and garnished, spread luxuriously across some surface of your design. I'm tired of being devoured. I'm tired of watching you lick your fork and knife, but I'm afraid of not knowing how else to be held. Thank you. Wonderful poem about how. Well, actually, you tell us what oh, what is about because yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. So I wrote this poem. I mean, a few years ago now, actually, but it's one that really feels close to my heart. It's probably since I started reading poems more in public. It's one of the ones I perform most frequently, mm -hmm. which is interesting. I think to me, what it's about, it was really something I wrote to try to capture this feeling of what is it like to be observed by. I guess in a contemporary sense, as someone who like, yeah, like actively colonization is not happening in the traditional sense, quote unquote, in terms of like white folks returning to going to a country where they don't belong. Like that's not happening to my body right now. Right. That's the legacy of like mm -hmm. why I'm here, because those things happened in the country that my family is from. Mm -hmm. But what I think about is like, OK, for someone like me to occupy the body that I do in this kind of state, I hold and understand what it is when white folks look at me, for example, mm. especially as a performer, especially right. as a person who dances. And right. something I think about a lot when I think about the times that I feel like I've been witnessed by, by white folks predominantly is like, as a person who learned a dance form that mm -hmm. comes from like a world dance form, like I performed in all kinds of these like multicultural festivals growing up, right? right? Yeah. So there's a lot of solidarity for like between me and all these other usually young women that I knew who were learning their cultural dance forms. Like we'd all show up to this big community center or multi-purpose room. And it was mm -hmm. like, you got the West African kids over here. You got the Chinese kids over here doing their Chinese dance you got us over here we're all just looking at each other like hey really holding it down look at us preserving our cultures or whatever but like you know it was for our families and for us but inevitably at these kinds of festivals you'd have a lot of white families who'd show up and it was their kind of way of what they perceived as taking in culture so I have these really early memories right of like white people approaching me after mm -hmm. I perform these dances that are so not for them and I'm, I've also been in a lot of spaces where they're not in the audience at all like I know what that feels like but I remember right what it is to be approached and be told like oh your outfit is so beautiful like mm -hmm. your dance it's so right all the all the words that we know now are really like they feel like corny like super cliche like how many times have I been called exotic right how many times <laughs> have I been called like 
these adjectives that to me carry such a strange kind of meaning depending on where it comes from and who it comes from. Yeah. Really, anyone. Exotic to who, right? To who? Because yeah. India has like the second most populous country <laughs> in the world. It's like, um, totally. <laughs> I'm so majority. I'm such a majority. Absolutely. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like they don't know, but they just, they simply don't know. And that's beautiful. I don't need them to know. I don't need to be visible or legible by any means to that, to those folks. I'm not accountable to them. So, you know, it's not something that ever felt too heavy, but it accumulates, right? Right. So I think about experiences like that. I think about experiences of, you know, I've been in a relationship with a white male partner, for example. Mm -hmm. And though if I think about that experience, like what was it, right, to Mm -hmm. be held and witnessed by him and his family members? Mm -hmm. And what are the little uh, comments or conversations that really indicate and tell me a lot about how I'm being held? And There's certain energies, there's certain anxieties, right, that start to develop because of the ways that you're being witnessed. Like, mm-hmm. there's this concept in, in quantum physics. I don't know how we're getting from race and culture to quantum know. physics, but here we are. Go ahead. There's this concept in quantum physics that says, like, the object is shifted based on what and how it's being observed, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think about that a lot for my people, for brown, black, indigenous folks more broadly, Mm -hmm. when it comes to like the white gaze, whatever that means to you is this idea that like we are all shapeshifters in our own way, even within our own communities, right? Because there's so much multiplicity and nuance there, like with our families versus uh, neighbors and other people in our community, elders, whatever. But there's a sense of like how we're held and how we're observed changes our shape. Mm -hmm. Um, When I think about what it means to be someone, and especially, you know, when it comes to Asian folks, I think Asian folks have a proximity to whiteness that is really dangerous in this country, and it can be really harmful, and it's a Mm -hmm, tool. mm -hmm. It's a tool that's used against Asian folks to prevent, obviously, like, solidarity and multiplicity and pan-ethnic kind of work in Mm -hmm. the Asian community at large, but also, like, how do we relate to folks from other communities? So... I think about what does it do? What does it do for Asian folks to be held in that way, to be oriented towards the white gaze? How does that change our shape? Um, And then also I think at the core of this poem is, yeah, like a very much a body experience and very much a female body experience. Mm -hmm. I do speak from that place. You know, I identify as a a cis woman and there's some sense of what is it to be held in the gaze of a person that, again, I don't even necessarily have a lot of these people in my life as a writer, as a performer, as a worker for justice, as an educator. I don't really think about white folks in their comfort or anything that often at all. But I think this poem was really born out of a desire to still express, like, what is the legacy of coming from a culture that was colonized for 400 years. Like, colonizers, you know, mm-hmm. were, have been in India for 400 years mm-hmm. and were ousted in 1947. Like, that's mm-hmm. when the last British battalion walked out the door. Like, that's a right. recent right. legacy. Right. You know, 1947, like, that's recent. Right. It's wild to me to really think about. And so much has happened in that subcontinent and in the region since 1947 in terms of mass displacement and infrastructure collapse and also rebuilding and reclamation of certain institutions and practices. And it's complex, but I wanted to really be as specific and nuanced as I could. Like, that's why this poem is called What Colonization Feels Like Some of the Time. It's a vast concept. It's a vast legacy and it's ongoing and it's intrinsically tied into how our world is constructed. I like that it's some yeah. of the time. Some of the because, time. You know, we have to live our lives yes. the other times. We do, we do. <laughs> we have to live our lives the other times. Uh, again, thing, uh, there's a lot of times when I don't feel like this. This is not something I necessarily carry with me all the time. 
But uh, and it's and it's something that I wrote to talk about my, my experience and the experience that I maybe have heard mirrored in other women who also come from other communities or cultures or countries that have experienced really deep and long-standing colonization. Mm -hmm. um, this sense of consumption, right? Yeah. Which is also something I really identify with American and Western culture, right? It's a very right. consumption-based culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, the consumption is, it's in everything, right? It's in food and it's in convenience and it's in objects and material things, but it's also in the bodies of brown and black women mm -hmm. um, and yeah. Asian women, yeah. right? It's like we, we consume them. Right. We are consumed. Right. There's a lot of, as you said, exotification, yes. which is kind of ironic when it's talked about on this particular soil when everybody is foreign, and including the indigenous people. They just came like thousands of years before all of us. Absolutely. But it's really weird because I don't know when, I guess this probably has been for a long time, that we keep looking at our current selves yes. as the stasis yes. that we don't realize somehow that without migration, we wouldn't be here today. Absolutely. We, like migration is how all of us have survived until this day. Yeah. It's something that's in common with all human beings because, yeah. you know, as any species sure. is that if something doesn't work out, we try to yeah, move. move away or we die, <laughs> we, you yeah. know, like, yeah. We either survive it or we die. I yeah. mean, it is a survival of the fittest in some ways. It's that migration is part mm -hmm. of that process. So for people to somehow look at this as like, this is my culture. This is exactly as it is. I'm afraid of it changing mm -hmm. in any shape or form mm -hmm. from any perspective. Mm -hmm. But especially when it comes to colonization, mm -hmm. it's like, Hello, do you remember how, you know, it's, it's very strange it is. that we don't look at our past and see Listen. that this is a very common pattern. It's wild, yeah, you know, Ana Flores had this tweet once, also shout out to Ana Flores, I love you, um, but she has this tweet where she was talking, I think I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it was like her saying that, you know, people want history to begin and end with their bodies and their life, mm -hmm. and that's such a deeply flawed way of perceiving and holding time, because mm -hmm. the land has its history, right? Like, rivers have their history, mm -hmm. time and conditions for what bring us to a particular place in time, politically and socially, extend so far in so many directions. I think there is some desire, right, for absolution. There's some desire for making something feel realized or complete or, or understood completely in our lifetimes. Like, I think that's also a Western consciousness thing is we really want things to be defined and understood. And, like, I think about that a lot with the word decolonize, for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wrote this poem, What Does Colonization Feel Like Some of the Time? And this word decolonize is one that's used a lot, you know, in the justice movement at large. And I'm here for it as an experiment. Like, I understand that it's invoking maybe... Uh, an image or an imagination, mm -hmm. but in general, I, I take a lot of issue with that word because I'm like, oh my God, like, what could that possibly mean for us to truly decolonize? Like, what could it possibly mean? What I know is that it's not going to be done in a month, and I know it's not going to be done in a year. Like, we are working to undo some really, really basic work on our consciousness to get us to understand cohesively what safety means, right? To cohesively understand what liberation means or what justice even means. And it's like, if we're working and struggling to get our own communities to understand some of these ideas, like this idea of decolonizing again becomes, I think, almost, 
I would say it's a little bit of a reckless way to use the word. And I think that's why it's like, I'm really here for intentional interrogation of like, what are our histories? What are our pasts? Mm -hmm. What are our patterns? What are the conditions for us being here and being as explicit as possible? Because we have to share those histories with one another transparently. Right. Well, also there's, as you said before, Anna's quote, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, was one of our early interviews. Yay. Yay! I think it was like... February last year or something. Cool. Similar with this identity of colonize, colonizer, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. because it's all about sphere of influence, right? Yeah. Because India, being the large country, the incredibly historic culture that yeah. it is, it's at times. I mean, one of the reasons it's so big is because some people colonize. Oh yeah. Right, and Tamil Absolutely. is a minority because again there was colonization laws sim- similar with uh, China and similar mm-hmm. with something a small country like Japan mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. mid twentieth century. Absolutely. There was a lot of and now of course uh, the American colonization and then the Russian colonization yes. that's yeah. happening now. And the current colonization, again, by India and China yeah. of Africa. Yeah. So depending on where you go in the world, the, the idea of who's the colonizer. Who's colonizing is... Yeah. Yes. And we can be colonizers as well as colonized at the yes. same time. Yes, we can. I, that's literally... I have this other... The other poem I sent you, uh-huh. before we decided on right. this one to talk right, about, right. that's one of the lines, right? It was like, I'm a colonized colonizer. Right, right. Right? And like, that's true for so many of us. So it's like, again, how can we decolonize when we haven't even fully understand and haven't fully been able to embrace and talk about the complex histories of so many of our identities, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what those inheritances look like so that we can really start to follow uh, new leadership. For example, I continue to do really important work of like accountability, right? Mm-hmm. Because I understand the complexity of my identity mm-hmm. and or I'm starting to and I have in the last couple of years. So if that becomes true, like who do I follow? Who do I uplift and amplify? How do I continue to organize people like my family and my cultural community to get mm-hmm. them to understand Right, the complexity of our histories? Yeah. Absolutely. Like this notion of being, again, a colonized colonizer, which a lot of people, like, again, that's and that's a history that the West or even America, like, doesn't have a, a lens for or doesn't have a history for. Right. So it's almost our responsibilities as people who have the privilege of knowing our countries of origin and our cultures of origin. Like, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's both an unlearning and a revealing his, history work to mm-hmm. do there. But for a lot of people, that feels personal, I think. And it's hard for them to, like, claim and uncover those histories without feeling like, oh, dang, like, what does that mean about me? And I'm like, it's not about you. This is about something much larger than you. Like, be willing to grapple with these histories because it's necessary as we move towards authenticity, which I think is so the only place that liberation can start from. And again, why this idea of, like, decolonizing feels like such an interesting ask to me. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, and I think the reason, you know, one of the lines that's really important to me in this poem is the last couple of lines where I'm describing, like, maybe what it feels like, right? Specifically, again, thinking about the, the colonized gaze of like maybe like white folks or European colonizers mm-hmm. is like, oh, okay, here's all the ways that my body can be used and distributed and, and recreated um, mm-hmm. for your benefit. Mm-hmm. But then the idea is like, but I'm afraid of not knowing how else to be held, right? Right. Is it's again, if we have been practicing being seen or being objectified or being exoticized or being kind of pedestaled in a particular way mm-hmm. for the benefit of some sociopolitical or cultural framework, the responsibility becomes then to really understand and uncover 
how to shed that so that you can start to move in a different direction. Yeah. And again, face your people, face someone different and not just be here trying to justify your identity to white folks. Because right. if that happens, you're not doing the complex work that you're talking right. about, which right. is understanding the complexity of your own history right. um, and grappling with the various uh, versions of privilege or oppression that might show up in your cultural mm -hmm. community or your household. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I really, really yeah. appreciate the nuance that you just brought up and, and naming that because that's so necessary. Yeah, you know? and it's hard for a lot of folks to understand because, again, of this need that you mentioned to find stability, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is completely understandable, especially totally. in my situation now. Yes. Like, I want stability, yes. I want stability, yes. but at the same time to realize change is the constant, The right? only thing you can count yeah. on. <laughs> you, can, you can, I mean, change. you can sort of... You can try to manage what you can within your own control, but right. it's it's not always time does not happen at your beckoning. No, <laughs> so so it's it's very frustrating as human yes. beings because we are at the same time we claim to be sort of the epitome <laughs> of God's gift on earth. Truly, at the same time <laughs> we're so tiny. We're know? so tiny, man. I think about that like listen, damn man, we're so tiny, shit. I think about this a lot for human consciousness, too. This comes from a woman, a thinker I really appreciate, Arundhati Roy. Um, mm -hmm. She's a writer from India. She has a, quite a bit of visibility in the West these days. Mm -hmm. She wrote The God of Small Things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she talks about, in this book of hers I was reading, I think it's called uh, Field Notes on Democracy. Mm -hmm. She talks about consciousness for humans, right? And we, we're so funny as, as an animal, as a species, because, like, you know, I don't want to even pretend to think that I can understand how so many other species think. Like, that's what's so funny. I love that there are people, humans, that are so committed to studying, like, animals and, like, not, like, like whether it's indigenous folks or folks who, who do this through the institution, like, whatever, power to you. Like, y'all are really understanding how coral reefs work and how bees work and that shit's cool. But also, like, I feel like we can't even pretend to even use human language like what's that word anthropomorphize right mm -hmm. like there's so much i couldn't even begin to understand like i, I there's so many animals that i learned things about and it blows my mind like, like i love elephants like elephants move me really deeply mm -hmm. but there's this idea that i don't know that the talks about in the book where she's like most animals are living so deeply in the present right mm -hmm. because they have no choice right. it's like what's ahead of what's ahead of them is like okay i need to eat all right i need to sleep mm -hmm. i'm gonna kill this thing i'm right. gonna protect this thing right. and i'm gonna live that's it that's it. I'm, this is my this is my time, and I'm gonna address my needs as they go. But humans, and I should say humans now, modern humans, because of the way that civilization has progressed, like literally over the last whatever thirty thousand years we've been around, fifty thousand years we've been around, like we're here planning for a future, mm -hmm. um, and this idea of a future which doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. um, at least you know fundamentally, like literally, future doesn't exist. We're creating it in real time. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because I think that creates like that's a source of obviously deep anxiety and confusion for yeah. humans right because we are still animals and we still have a capacity to experience presence and i think mm -hmm. when we are at present humans feel really good mm -hmm. just like anyone else like how many times can you say whether that's like oh you went on a hike or you meditated you did something and you felt present and that's when you feel really tapped into something yeah. but then you also have to think about your bills that you have to pay you have to mm -hmm. think about where you're going to live next month you have to think about you know how you're going to pay your bills in a year you have to think about who you're going to support there's all these other factors that come into play because of how we've constructed society. And we're still, as humans, I think there's a, still some sort of resistance and 
to understanding and holding both of those things, it's obviously deeply necessary, but what a tough spot to be in as a creature. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because we have this capability that's a bit different because we're studying more on how animal brains work now Mm. and how they socialize and how sometimes they might do very similar things Mm. to us and not not just in the tool use, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in having complexity of Mm. like worldview. And cognition. Yeah, Yeah, things like that and and self-consciousness. But yeah, because we have this thing called rationalization. Yeah, truly. Everything is truly. really, let me explain to myself how this works. <laughs> how this works. Even though we don't really know how this works. Um, so it's really interesting to live that life because yes. then this life of, as you said, constructed and then consumerism, mm-hmm. like we form our own culture as we go. Yes, right? totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. And decide and normalize it, right? And, and with technology like that happens even faster, faster than ever before, like digital technology specifically. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. We'll get into that. That's a whole other podcast episode. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, because we are getting used to these new, ever faster and faster cycles yeah. of, you know, this is how fast our life must move. Yes. And yeah. our bodies are not, can't. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's, it's, people take that for granted. I think the like, the effect that it has on the nervous system, mm-hmm. you know, but truly like, it, I mean, the, the information that folks have access to and the method that we consume it, like all of that matters, you know, mm-hmm. all of that matters. It's vibrational. It has to do with frequency and it like directly affects our literal nervous system. Like there's so much I can say about this and so much we can talk about, but I think that's why like there is something to be said for it really matters, you know, how we engage with the information that we have and mm-hmm. the method and medium through which we absorb and take in our information because it's creating new sort of neurological pathways that humans are still figuring out how to what to do with and how to respond right what to do with this information that's presented to us and how does it affect our as you said our culture how does it affect the way that we plan for things how does it affect the choices that we make like all of that is happening so rapidly and we do need to do long-term thinking because our life expectancy is on the longer side, it depending is. on which part of the world we live in. Truly, and the conditions for um, that, absolutely. Yeah. The thing is, I, I don't think, even though our minds are getting to these rapid cycling, um, it's not helping us to concentrate on thinking more uh, long-term, yeah. planning for a better future for all of us, yeah. not just individuals. Not just individuals. And that's yeah. the shift, right? Yeah. That's, that's the shift. And we've just had so much cultural practice where dominant cultures however you want to describe that globally right dominant Mm -hmm. cultures or cultures of power have practiced neglect have practiced Mm -hmm. resource hoarding yeah because of this fundamental notion that resources are limited right Mm -hmm. and that's what we built political structure on and power structure on and economic structure on and that fundamentally right is individualistic it's patriarchal it's all these things we can name and yeah there's people who practice this and build entire kingdoms from it worldwide right still past present and future right but you know we're at a time where that's getting increasingly severe and the impact on our environment and folks most marginalized that's like that effect is becoming increasingly severe it is. It's really severe, and and I don't think people understand that. I feel like we are going backwards to like a serve system, a fiefdom, and it didn't work. Yeah. The first time around, that's why we developed better systems. Yes. Um, but I, I feel like something like a democracy where we live, it takes a lot of maintenance, and I don't feel like people understand that. Yeah. I mean, you can't just. It's, again, kind of interestingly feeds into our today's um, social media world because Mm -hmm. we see the results Mm -hmm. of hard work. We Mm -hmm. don't see the hard work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time, right, for 
And the probability of you becoming a superstar is very tiny. Yes. And people don't understand that. People just think, oh, you know, if I just post this thing, I'll be a superstar. Truly. Right? And my question with that is always like, man, we need to really question. We really need to question our aspirations, right? Yeah. Because the things we aspire to are the result of some, like, deep cultural brainwashing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're someone who's aspiring to a degree of fame, mm-hmm. like, where did that seed come from? And the question is always like, what does fame really mean? Where does fame come from? What does your idea of fame look like? or power look like and so I'm always like you know thinking about that the things we aspire to are, are the result of some real social conditioning it and is if we it change is. that then a lot more becomes possible but again we're afraid of not knowing how else to be held right yeah well I think that's the thing is that we have to be willing to try something new because yes. it might be better because if we know that what we have does not work it yes. doesn't mean we just keep saying well then let me expect less yes. rather than say, let me try something new. Maybe yes. I'll get something better out of it. Or just sit with yourself for a while and figure out what you want. Totally. You know, I have this cousin who grew up in a pretty privileged household, interestingly, in India, which is uncommon in my family. But she's a mm-hmm. uh, second cousin, so a different set of like grandparents and different mm-hmm. lineage there. Something I really appreciate about her is that she's really honest in a mm-hmm. really uh, unique kind of way. And something she said that I just wish more people who I think are resistant to to the things that you're talking about in terms of like the reflection practice is she said, you know, I think I'm afraid that I actually like the systems that are in place. (laughs) I think I'm afraid that if I actually had to stop meeting them, I wouldn't know what to do. She's like, and yet she's someone who thinks really critically about justice, right? <laughs> but is willing to admit that she's afraid to like really imagine alternatives. Right. And I'm like, man, I wish more people could just say that because I think that's yeah. true for a lot of people. Well, I think even people in the social justice sphere do not think that yeah. way. And that's very important because a lot of people who can afford to be in the social justice world are from a relatively more privileged background. Yeah. And that's problematic in itself in terms of closing its doors to uh, diverse thinking. Yeah. I don't know if you watched this, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. No, no. I think I've heard of it, but I haven't seen okay. it. Okay. She basically divorces her husband because he's a cheater. It's very feminist in, in one perspective, but there was something in this third season that to me was incredibly problematic mm. is that... She and the new girlfriend mm-hmm. has this little silent competition going on. The first time they meet in person, the girlfriend says, the girlfriend is portrayed as Chinese American uh-huh. and she's Jewish American. And so the girlfriend says, I'm going to be a doctor. And Mrs. Maisel, the main character, says, who's an up and coming comedian in the show, gotcha. says, I'm going to play the Apollo. And somehow that shuts up the woman who says, I'm going to be a doctor. I was like, wait a second, I know that works well for this TV series, but why is being a comedian more important than saving lives? I I was just like, whoa, what's with that priority? I don't understand. Like, I know I want to rule for her because she's the main character, but what a weird priority. Oh, that's interesting. I'd have to watch the show and get a little more yeah. context. But that's, um, yeah, I mean, again, right, things takes me back to the, the, this question we were talking about with fame, too, which is like the things we aspire to, right? Yeah, Aspirations yeah, are yeah. the product of social conditioning. So we got to right. think about, like, why do we aspire to what we aspire to? And, right. and, and But you, as a person who move your body yeah, yeah, yeah. and is in the entertainment world, yeah. part of it, part of your time, yeah. obviously playing at the Apollo will be a super stardom kind of a thing, right? Sure. It, it, absolutely makes sense is the epitome of what you might want to shoot for especially during her era which was like in the 60s sure. and i'm obviously an artist as well because i'm, a, I'm into literary arts yeah. poetry and everything 
at the same time, I have to know that even though I might be able to affect how people might think with my cluster of words, and you might be able to show people how to look at the body in different ways and or portray a story in using movement in an empathetic way, we can't save lives. No, listen, that's very real. That's a very real thing to consider. Like, I mean, I um, think we have to be very careful as um, artists to not become self-righteous about what we do and the impact and the effect that is potential. Like something I really love about, especially the artists that I spend time with, is their belief and understanding of art as being a really beautiful and honest way to express, to reveal, to transcend, to heal, to share, right? All the things. We can talk about all the ways that we can activate verbs in that way. But um, there are some very real needs like mm-hmm. human life needs, right. housing, health, food, right. that are totally unmet from so many people across right. this world. Right. And it's a sense of like, art is also one of those unmet needs, mm-hmm. right? But there is a degree of like, well, what does an intervention, a creative intervention alongside of these other structural violences really look like? And like, right. what is the opportunity as someone who can share story when you make something visible? What is your opportunity and accountability, right? right? To other things and so you know for me I think I felt I've had people ask me like even early probably earlier in my performance kind of I don't know experience which is like oh wouldn't you want to be like famous right and again mm-hmm. like I think I grappled or answered that question for myself earlier like now at this point it's several years ago but I'm always asking it all the time which is again fame is a means to what like what does that aspiration come from like no I actually I don't care about that like I don't desire For me, art is always an act of healing myself and is always Mm -hmm. an act of celebrating and doing something with community. There's a reason that I have a career that I have that's outside of that. Like, there's a reason I wouldn't want to be a professional in that way. Again, I think it's a beautiful thing to do. But for me, I I recognize that I have another skill set. And there are things that I want to do with that skill set in terms of supporting families and helping intervene in other systems mm-hmm. to prevent further acts of violence, right? So, like, I'm, I'm kind of in the mental health social work field. And that's, right, like, right, that's, right. for me, where I choose to exercise my skills. Right. But And I think art has that ability as well. It really well. does. It really does. Very men- feed into the mental health system and yes. healing and therapeutic yeah. aspect. Yeah. And in, in that, it can definitely save lives. Yeah. At the same time, it's not as immediate it's as not. a doctor. 100%. And I so, can sew your arm back together? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yes, you can. Using movement. But there is, I mean, but there is also like, you know, the Western medical field, especially is one that like is built on, I mean, drastic, drastic change, drastic changes need to happen. And I think, you know, the other reality is like a lot of people, it's also difficult to aspire to become a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Because it requires a lot of privilege to find that outcome for yourself, Mm -hmm. right? The amount of schooling, the amount of money, because I've had the privilege of going to college. Like I know a lot of people who chose to do pre-med or are on a route Mm -hmm. to become doctors for this reason, right? Mm -hmm. But you meet some of these people and I'm like, these are people who I feel like are the last people who should be providing healing to anybody. (laughs) When I remember some of these folks, I'm just like folks that are just so disconnected from humanity, Mm -hmm. are so self-centered, are power tripping eight days a week who just have egos that cannot be contained by walls, you know? Right. But that's similar to what you say about fame as yes. well. Is yeah. why do what we want this? that? Why do we want this? Why do we want to become a doctor? Is yes. it because of the prestige that it is comes for a lot of it? It is for right? a lot of people. The same with fame. Same with fame. Prestige. Totally. It's the and same not, shit. not the fundamental aspects yeah. of you know, why do you take the Hippocratic Oath? Why right. your primary duty is to save people, to help people. Right. 
Yet that's been pushed down the ladder of、mm. goals,、mm. especially in this country. I feel、mm. like it's commoditizing again what you talked about before,、mm-hmm. and in a way consumerism because、mm. doctors' appointment is set up in that it's the more turnovers they、yes. have, the more they're able more to make money, money billing,、Absolutely. and everything. Absolutely. So there's a again going back to consumption,、yes. which is good. I'm going to talk about my problem, which、oh, is also about consumption,、right. but.、Right. Well, you see, it's、yes. a different angle、yes. to consumption. I'm excited. I read it, so I'm excited to hear you. <laughs> Thank you. It's called the feast. These eyes love candy, from the sinuous to the sensuous, from blinding white to midnight black, from the symmetrical to the slightly off-centered. But the mind wants a balanced diet, multiple courses before the dessert. From the healthy greens of innovation to the diverse grains of ideation, bring me the harvest of your philanthropic cultivations. Give me your cornucopia of a hunter's gathering in meaty conversations. Show me the fruits of your philosophical labor before you tempt me with your confections. I need a lasting feast to sustain us through the days and nights that shroud your beauty from my ravenous sights.、Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>、mm. Tell me the story behind that poem. Oh yeah, yeah. I love my eye candy. In、mm. terms of, I, I'm a cisgender,、uh, straight female.、Mm-hmm. So I realize that I'm attracted to certain types,、mm-hmm. not necessarily race based or color based. But firstly, a type in terms of sight, in terms of what they look like, sure, sure, sure. but also a psychological type. Right, right, right. But, I mean, that's what I hear in this poem, right?、So、yeah. You're saying it's like、yeah. it's one thing for you to look real good. <laughs> yeah. But I need to know about the mind and the spirit that's behind all of this. Right, right,、yeah. exactly. So it is talking about consumption in many forms,、mm-hmm, and、right. not just on the surface,、mm-hmm. but going deeper,、right. consuming someone. In their totality,、mm-hmm. which is kind of scary in、sure. some ways. But, <laughs> hey, listen. But,、yeah. Look, I'm a. That being said, right, like this language of like devouring or being devoured, like I mean, that's it's 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 a sexy concept. Like it,、mm-hmm. when we're when we're writing about desire and consumption in the or yeah, consumption, but desire in the way that you're writing about it,、mm-hmm. as opposed to the way that I'm writing about it, which is kind of like, man, I didn't sign up for this, and I wish it were different. Right. But right. when used to to articulate the way that you feel about somebody, when、mm-hmm. it's Coming from that place, like go ahead, no, no shame、right. in the game. I、right. think it's a great way to reclaim that language. Yeah, and that's、yeah. what I feel like. What we share in common is that the the idea of consumption,、yes. the food, the、um, yeah. using food as a metaphor. But mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. where we differ is how one is being consumed,、totally. and where I'm speaking from the consumer's point of view, yes. where I'm, yes. as I'm saying, I'm laying it all out for you,、yeah. like I'm giving you a very clear contract here. Yes. <laughs> Especially as a cis straight woman, like that's empowering, right? You're saying like I'm the consumer.、Right. Here's what I want. Here's my taste.、Mm-hmm. And I'm letting、mm-hmm. you know what I want.、Right. Versus、right. me being like, dang, like cut it out. Everybody, stop, stop, <laughs> yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I appreciate、right. that about your poem. And the sense of wanting choice, yes. right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And and when I read yours, I was like, ooh, here's another perspective.、Hey. And I, and、yeah. that's what I love about these podcasts、mm-hmm. is that something can have. Links and then differences, and we can sort of talk around、yes. this and why we are writing from different perspectives. It was meaningful to me to read when I read your poem. I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" Like again, I'm writing from the. 
perspective of the consumed from the perspective of like a collective gaze, predominantly male gaze to predominantly female bodies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's very structural and you're writing Mm -hmm. from this like very personal, right? Mm -hmm. Like very personal, like sexual place of like, I am a woman, like let me talk about what I'm desiring and Mm -hmm. the people that I see in front of me and like what I, and I deserve the wholeness. Right. Um, So it was really special for me to like hold both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Mm -hmm. It's great to see both points of view and because, you know, as we said before, we're not constants because yes. I, I know you and so I know how confident you are. So I'm sure many times you you do feel from the perspective of what I wrote. Yeah, and absolutely. many times I felt from the perspective of what you wrote Definitely. as well. Definitely. And yeah, so it's, mm. it's really interesting to see that and to talk about both. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nothing like it you know approaching somebody and telling them that you like them or saying what I mean and meaning, meaning what I say like I'm very grateful <laughs> to be able to do that at this stage of my life so yeah, I always yeah, love yeah. I really it's important and beautiful for me to hear women talk very confidently about their bodies and about their desires and about their wants I think right. it will always be a special thing for me to read and see yeah, yeah. and it's not easy as you it's know not. as a fellow woman yeah. because it could be construed very uh, wrongly mm-hmm. by people who come from a more self-centered place yeah just like people, men who assault women who said, well, because of the way she dressed. Right, but, right, you know, absolutely. like, it's nobody dressed for you. Nobody dressed for you. It's <laughs> difficult. I mean, there's so many factors, right, where, like, bodies that are coded as femme or queer, right, mm-hmm. uh, trans bodies. Like, there's so many bodies that are so perceived as being hypersexualized, oversexualized by mm-hmm. people, and that's a justification for violence against those bodies. Nice. So, despite that... Right when I think about all the folks in my life, myself included, who are reclaiming what it means to be uh, really live right in their desires and live with their sexuality and live in the comfort of their body and like mm-hmm. not censor that despite threats of violence is something that I think is so powerful. I mean, this is I think one of the things that inspires me most about sex workers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of sex workers just that I follow on the internet right, to learn from because I think there's so much to be learned from sex workers right. about how to truly hold your body and understand again the I mean, when I think about the threats that sex workers experience against their bodies and the entitlement that people feel over their body mm-hmm. and the idea that inherent to their work is claiming that pricing it and saying like this is mine right. is something that uh, inspires me really deeply. Yeah, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigmatism. Oh, um, so much. So stigmatization much. So against much. sex workers so is much. very ingrained it is and fundamental into the culture. Yeah, yeah, and it ties into your line of I'm afraid I don't know how to be held because yes. again, it's this we live in an environment that shapes who we are, yeah. and sometimes we are not conscious of that shaping hundred not conscious of that shaping tell me about it absolutely (laughs) absolutely and so it's it's very frustrating because there there is a sense of judgment and there Mm -hmm. is a sense of fear because of that yes hundred Oof, and and something around that discomfort around sex workers or discomfort around sex in general is such a deep-seated conditioning right like you said like i think of, of so many things that's probably one of the deeper sort of rungs of like how people start to uh, deprogram themselves or unlearn things because it's religion, it's um, taught through gender, it's taught through sexuality, like it's forced for so many people for them to never, like they might uh, unlearn a lot of other things but at the basis there's still a fundamental sometimes 
uh, attitude of criminalization towards sex workers right. or yeah. people who or queer bodies or yeah. bodies who are vocal about their sexuality like that will be there even for somebody who otherwise can talk about justice and talk about liberation in all these other ways because right. it's such a root I mean it's like the root chakra it's the root everything right, right. like there's so much that comes along with that right. that will still just like get people back on some sort of like rigid understanding of the world where suddenly a binary exists where maybe otherwise they were starting to understand that that's not how the world is right right and it's it's really scary because people like you said it's i think it's internalized not just in things that we deliberately study but things that we learn through osmosis like culture and language language absolutely even though english is not as binary as some other languages still that we have very few choices in terms of pronouns and and in terms of how we think of different concepts of different subjects of study like science and math stem you know again that's something that we still kind of push men toward yes and not as many women yeah and also like home um caretaking Mm -hmm. again that's Mm -hmm. a field that we still push many more female yes people toward and just like no yeah just like a really underdeveloped understanding of gender fluidity and the ways that we gender labor constantly we gender so much we gender Mm -hmm. so much in this country and culture and yeah, there's a sense of like moral value given to so many things mm-hmm. without really even thinking sometimes. Like yeah. immediately something is coded as being morally right or wrong. And it's like, where does that come from? Yeah. A lot of times it's like Christianity, vaguely, even if you're not a Christian, but if you've lived here for a long time, like you're inadvertently espoused, like yes. talking about values that have yes. to do with the dominant religion, right? Yes. That's founded sh- in so much in this country. I've started writing much more about biblical elements. Yeah. I find a lot more biblical elements in my poetry after I've moved to Arizona. Wow. And interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to me, mm-hmm. even though I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, it's still worth, worth study. I find religion's fascinating. Right? Yeah. I think I, we all should. Cause. I think, yeah, I definitely think so. At the same time, it's like when it seeps into your work, yes. you're like... What is it about my environment that's making that's this making happen? That's making this happen. Right. That's definitely a question. So That's interesting. Yeah. Again, it takes observation and yes. self-reflection. Yes. And it's something that we don't do enough of and yes. we don't have enough time to do. Absolutely. That's the thing is people don't yeah. make... Yeah, it's like it's people don't have the time to do it. Or it's kind of... Um, I think what maybe ends up happening is people, because of the speed at which things go, especially mm-hmm. if you're someone who's expected to say something or respond all the mm-hmm. time, or if you perceive yourself as someone who should respond to everything, people can be so quick to like form an opinion or have an answer, mm-hmm. but they don't actually like maybe have a, a sort of a fully formed backing to what that is. And not that there's anything wrong with like sharing a half-formed idea, like right. share those all day. Right. But I think that depending on the lo- amount of quote-unquote structural power that you have, a lot of times... Mm-hmm. You know, this is when we'll have uh, even local politicians, right, who are, like, voting on things or passing legislation that immediately impacts bodies. Mm -hmm. If they don't have a fully formed analysis and they haven't actually taken the time to unlearn and taken the time to really reflect, it's like they're just trying to keep up with whatever language they think community is demanding of them, Uh especially if they're, like, vaguely liberal, vaguely, like, democratic. Then they're probably passing legislation that's actually continuing harm. Yeah, I mean, like, Cory Booker and also Kamala Harris, but especially Cory Booker was talking about during the last debate that he was in, um, which nobody else seemed to pick up on, is access Mm. to 
opportunities. Mm. Not just like, and I noticed in the last debate, uh, people were just saying black and brown people. Black and brown people is just like a phrasing that they throw out to say, well, if I say that, then people from these communities are going to respond positively. Yeah, give me a Um, pass. Give me a yeah, yeah, which is like complete BS because we're not morons. Yeah, you know, totally. Like you can use these words that you think are coded, but there's a lot more that should be demanded of people and asked of people, right, through action and word. Totally, totally, yeah. (laughs) I think about that a lot with the word, like with the phrase, I should say, POC. Like I still to this day don't know what that means, you know. Not to say I haven't used it before, of course, you know, I'm guilty of having used it before, probably, you know, a while ago, years ago. But I remember even my brother and I having conversations about it. My mother was like, man, what's, what's, like, what's that word mean? Like, he's like, where'd you, where'd you hear that? Like, it's, 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 I feel like a white person made that up. Like, who made up that word? And it's real, you know, it's like, Sometimes there's a desire to unify for the sake of making a point mm-hmm. um, when it is something that feels like it's predominantly like, again, something that doesn't exist in global majority communities versus like white communities. But again, like it's just it's hard being in this country. There's so many communities and each of our even larger communities has like 20 or 30 different experiences right. at least yeah. contained within yeah. both ethnically and economically and linguistically. Yeah. Um, so to speak as specifically as we possibly can when we're speaking from our own experiences, while also like trying to find language that unifies when it's politically or socially helpful. Right. Um, right. It's just such a trip. But then when I hear like older white politicians saying POC, I'm like, they're just saying that because they think that's going to get them a vote. Like they don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't think they even know. Like, it's just odd. It's just funny. Yeah, yeah. But these things travel fast, you know? Yeah, that's, that's just it. You know, going back to the idea of branding yes. and marketing. Yeah. It's what's the most efficient. Because, totally. Totally. you know, as of last debate or even as of the first debate, it's yeah. only what, like two years left? how can you get to know a community in two years yeah nothing (laughs) totally 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 but that look this is why i mean electoral politics is a whole thing and i (laughs) that is not my views that's not my sphere that's not my field i pay attention to what happens in my local community as much as i can but i'm like this this shit's a performance man it's Mm. always a performance and it has been for so long in this country because of exactly what you described just Mm. this this quickness to be ahead and to outperform your your competitor and to say the right things in the right order to garner a particular outcome i mean you know it's a yeah it just feels so contrived (laughs) yeah Yeah. but in some ways also they're just giving us what we're demanding of them yes yes 100 percent yeah interesting feedback loop (laughs) isn't it's kind of frustrating it is it's painful and frustrating, especially when you're in a part of the community that's not being addressed properly, yeah. more yes. like in passing. Yeah. Black and brown people. Listen. Black and brown people. Black you know, it's, 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 it's like, it's not, um, that encompasses a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from, from Asia to Africa, basically. Yes, and, truly. And, and not just, not, not even just South Asia, yeah. you know, like yeah. even North Asia will have yeah. gradients. Yeah. And so it's, it's very strange to it's hear strange. it thrown out as like a dog whistle phrase. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> Anyway, I don't even know how we got here. But <laughs> Same. That's, that's, I love it, though. It's great. So one of the things I forgot to ask you yes. in the beginning is mm-hmm. you said something about you were dancing, and but you also got into wordplay and therefore yeah. poetry. Mm-hmm. But was there like specific age or reason how you got into poetry? Definitely. Actually, yes. I think in terms of my relationship to writing, I've journaled a lot. The first journal I remember having was like fourth or fifth grade, but I moved around a lot growing up, so I've since lost a lot of those uh, Mm -hmm. journals, just like physically, but I I do still have a couple. Like I have one that I had in middle school, which I think I had in sixth grade, 
And then I used that from like sixth to seventh grade. And then I stopped. And then I picked that journal up again when I was like a junior, senior in high school. Mm -hmm. And I read it and looked at it. It was so just like amazed (laughs) with like my past self, just like really an experience. And I started Mm -hmm. writing in it again. And then I was a really committed journaler through college. And it was a really important practice for me through healing and through documenting what I was feeling, all these things. But I also feel like when I was around 20, 21 is when I remember like the shift of I was writing in my journal, but I think part of me, even in my journaling practice, was still not 100% honest, like mm-hmm. as if it was still, I would like pen the page and then right before I wrote, there was like some veil that would show up that's still like I was reading some of the things I was writing and I was like, is this really what I mean? Is this really what I mean to say? Mm-hmm. And then something shifted and maybe it was just practice mm-hmm. where I got comfortable and I really got to the point of feeling like safe to really write about what I was writing. but. Yeah. I also started to unlock some experiences that were adverse or difficult that I experienced when I was a kid. And I started to like come to terms with those things. And that unlocking really started to happen. And then it was that alongside, I had learned my cultural dance form for a really long time. And Mm -hmm. as much as I loved it, I got to a point same around the same age, 19 years old, where I was like so hungry to think about dance and think about movement and my body outside of the confines of my cultural dance form. And I took dance classes when I was in college, just got overrides and because I wasn't, I didn't study dance. So I would ask for opportunities to do these classes. And I will never forget the first time I was asked in a dance class to improvise. And I was like, wow, like (laughs) as much as rich as my dance form, the cultural dance form I learned is like it's richness. There's also a high stakes because it's, it's Mm -hmm. the idea is that like, this is cultural preservation. So Mm -hmm. like, there is a sense of like right and wrong. There is a sense of like, do it the right way. There's very particular form. It's Mm -hmm. very codified. And I had never been given the opportunity to improvise. I had Mm -hmm. maybe choreographed sections, but that means I'm just drawing from the same vocabulary and making my own thing. But to just improvise, meaning find movement in my body that maybe wasn't the steps that I had been taught, was so freeing. And I remember tearing up the first time I did it, just Uh because so much is held in our bodies. And I think the second you start moving into it in a new way, you you don't know what you're going to find. And after that experience, my writing changed. And I started to... I don't know, something just changed in me. And all of a sudden, I was more honest with how I wrote. All of a sudden, I was unlocking and finding emotions and all experiences that were held in my body. And I started to feel like a hunger to share Mm -hmm. my own story, not the stories that I grew up telling, which were stories of myth, right? Right, right. I wanted to share my stories. And, you know, I was maybe 19 or 20 when I went to my first like poetry workshop, right? Like a community poetry workshop, went to my first open mic And started to wonder what it meant to share some of these things. Mm -hmm. And that's really when it started to snowball of like, okay, I was sharing things I was writing. And it didn't feel like poetry at the time. It was mostly just like journal entries. But I felt like they were written in such a way that they were maybe poetic in in nature. But it was prose. So I was sharing journal entries. I was still taking dance classes where I was, you know, being asked to do things like improvise. And being asked to do things like move to whatever song I want to. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that just started to really build and create on itself. And I was being asked to perform and being asked by dancers to collaborate. I was writing more and being asked to share. And the privilege, right, of just being called on as a Mm -hmm. collaborator, Mm -hmm. as a performer, um, has brought really beautiful people into my life. It's obviously also a a large way that I teach and work with young people. Mm -hmm. 
that's kind of where it all started to happen. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I feel really grateful for the relationship I have to both of these practices now. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It made me sort of visualize like this bicycle with training wheels. Oh, and you yes. just like took, <laughs> took them off. off. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love a good bike metaphor. <laughs> yes. That's, that's wonderful mm-hmm. to Thank hear. You so much. Like I said to other people I've interviewed, poets come at poetry different ways. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's, Amazing to hear that you know you went first through the physical form and yes, then into yeah. the literary form. Truly, yeah. truly, yeah. It's yeah something that uh, a really f- interesting and fun tool as an improviser or dancer in the modern sense is like to do free writes. That's what I love. Like there's a physical intelligence that dancers have that mm-hmm. I just really treasure about my practice and where I come from. Mm-hmm. So free writing is this really beautiful tool that dancers will use, right? Where it's like you maybe are writing about a very particular thing and then we take language and then we extract and find some pattern in that language and then let those words inform movements mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. So it's a big part of my creative practice mm-hmm. at large and also just like, again, a healing practice and a, a way that I have fun and a way that I explore. Mm-hmm. But I'm really grateful that I found my way to language through my body because mm-hmm. I think it feels really important to me. It feels pretty spiritual, honestly. Like there's a lot of times when I'm moving or when I'm writing and I'm sharing what I write where because I come from, again, a, a ritually steeped culture, like all of these things really matter to me when I think about how we gather and how we share story. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Just in closing, yes. um, there are two things I always ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, uh, where can people see you read? Oh, yes. Okay. In terms of where I enjoy reading, I really enjoy reading at Palabras whenever the you know Pocket to Me event happens. I don't perform at all of them because I really enjoy going and listening, but sometimes I choose to share, so maybe catch me at one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's third Saturdays. Third Saturdays of every month in the evening. And yeah, every now and again, there's like other arts events where people reach out and ask me to read something or, or move or share something. But, you know, I mean, if, if it's in Phoenix, like I try to stay as active as I can. And if people ask me, then I, I'll say yes. So you can follow me on Instagram. That's like usually the best way that I keep people posted. That is at Mostly Raji, which is M-O-S-T-L-Y-R-A-J-I. Um, I try to really be good about posting the things that I participate in, the things that my friends participate in things that I find meaningful so thank you so much really appreciate this time we shared together thank you so much interviewing me and for sharing your beautiful poem with me thank Thank you you. same I'm happy that we were able to like read and talk with each other yes we covered a lot yeah we did (laughs) covered a lot of ground (laughs) as usual you can find links to the topics we discuss in the episode notes and you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.